You found it. The no-nonsense, no-script podcast you've been waiting for. Real people on real issues. Welcome to Dynamic Independence. The home of logic, reason, and common sense. Let's do it. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Johnny Anderson, and I'm joined today by Bruce Adams and Marty Foster. Today, we're going to talk about the restrictions that are being put on new arrivals into the United Kingdom. Is it too late for that, or is it a good time to even start them? Are they even necessary? We're also going to talk about mandated vaccinations. Is it okay for a government to mandate a vaccination onto its population? And we're going to talk about Huawei. With the recent developments of everything that's happened with this pandemic, should we even consider doing business with them in the future as a Western civilization, not just as a country, but all Western nations? Can we build our own products that would be far superior to what they're offering? And should we do it for our own national securities? All right, let's go ahead and get started. Marty, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm, I'm very well. It's a very blustery but bright day here in the UK. I've had a good um, four-mile walk, um, uh-huh. not too far, uh, around a, a, a nearby country park and managed to social distance as I did so. Um, but yeah, good. It's cold outside, though. Uh-huh. Well, you know what? I actually got back in the gym today, if you can believe it. Oh, well done. First time in over two months. And you wouldn't believe. It's just like, there's just something in there that's just not right. You know what I mean? It's like that atmosphere is just, it's there, but it's not. But there was no mask wearing. There was no social distancing, none of that stuff. They had all the machines that were like taped off. You know, you you had to use like every other machine. It was kind of ridiculous, really. But yeah, that's what it was. Couldn't use the locker rooms. It had to change before you went, obviously. So you just walked in, you had your workout, and you walked out. So no uh, no locker facilities. Before I forget, Bruce, how are you? I'm doing well. Uh, a bit envious of Marty's uh, cool weather, but uh, yeah, good otherwise. Well, I'd rather have your warm weather, to be fair. It was cold and rainy here today. The sun looked uh, like I mean, it wanted to yesterday. peek through. Yeah, but you got, you got tornadoes this time of year, so I'm not really interested. Yeah, I mean, yesterday we, we had a... Um, windstorm here the other day that uh, took out part of my fence so <laughs> we had to go and fix it yesterday that was a uh, yeah i remember you telling me you had a, to run down fun. yeah i remember you telling me there was something about that but uh, we talked a little bit about that this morning all right so i want to get into uh i want to get into some uk stuff because i hold some uk stuff back because i, I have to have my na- my native uk guy on here to be able to discuss these issues in detail because we have a uk audience and we thank you all very much for listening that's much appreciated we uh we like to stay well rounded so i wanted to get into some of these things that are going on in england and right now they've come out today and they've said that they're going to introduce a quarantine for international travelers starting on june 8th why are they waiting why wouldn't they do it now yeah when you look at uh, what this quarantine means, it's mainly all about the people traveling for vacations. When they come back, they will have to go into a quarantine process, stating the address that they're going to be at. And you can bet someone will be monitoring whether or not they stay in quarantine. It makes the whole thing a bit a bit silly, really, because there's no way your average you know, employed person can have a two-week holiday followed by another two weeks where they have to isolate and remain at home. So if if we're all back at work by then, when holidays or vacations start again for people, places like Greece, the, the Greek islands, have opened up, but they're saying they're only opening up to visitors from countries with the lowest R rates, the lowest uh, rates of infection. And the UK isn't one of those. We're one of the highest. So... I don't know how it's, how it's going to work. I, I, I just can't see it really happening at all. No one's going to go for a two-week vacation or even a one-week vacation to come home to have a further two weeks where they have to remain at home, isolated. It, it just doesn't work. I'm sorry. I, I don't quite understand what's going on. Yeah, I don't understand it either. Australia was doing the same thing. They have a two-week thing where you, you have to go there and you have to self-isolate for two weeks. So I'm going to go on a holiday to Australia and I'm going to have to sit in my hotel room for two weeks. And then what? Walk around for a day and then fly back? That doesn't make any sense. Same thing with Hawaii. Bruce, there was a guy in Hawaii that just got arrested for that, didn't he? Yeah. yeah he was, uh, okay. Hawaii is having you, you fly into Hawaii, you have to stay in quarantine for two weeks. And this guy just was like, 
you know, landed, went to his hotel room and would, then went out and was surfing at the beach and <laughs> they arrested him for it. Well, look, just don't release or don't raise the restrictions until we can actually go back to normal. But governments globally are under pressure by their transport industries, by their tourism industries to, to start opening up. Either just open up and let's go for it, or if it really is that dangerous, keep it shut. Keep it shut down. I don't know. It all just sounds crazy to me. I don't see how any of this works. If someone has to travel to another country for a reason other than you know leisure and vacation, then whoever is paying for that person to go to that country, because it's going to be some form of business thing, has to factor in that they are going to be isolating for two weeks once they get to the destination and when they come back they're going to be isolated again for a further two weeks no one's going to be doing that no business is going to be operating on under those sorts of uh, conditions are they no absolutely not because you're talking about a month of being out of circulation like that that just doesn't even from a business standpoint that doesn't make any sense you go let's say i have to go to the uk for business okay so i leave where i'm at I fly to the UK. I'm in a hotel room for two weeks. I come out. I spend three hours at my meeting that I that I could have done in a day. And then I fly back and then I have to stay home again for another two weeks. I'm out of circulation for four weeks because of a three hour meeting. Yeah. Now, I'm so just as an example. You, makes no sense. It makes no sense at all. And so do we think that the uh, lifting of restrictions is just for show in this case? It's just like, oh, look, we're doing something things are getting slightly better. But of course, they're making it so impractical. I'm wondering if this is the same in, in the UK. This is what it is in the US. They're not lifting restrictions in certain cases because everyone's afraid. And when I say everyone's afraid, I'm not talking about the people. I'm talking about the businesses. Okay. They're afraid. They're afraid they're going to get sued. Is this the same thing in England? Is this the same thing in the UK with what's going on over there? People are afraid to get sued because they, they can... They can trace back and then you've got people say, oh, well, I I can sue you because I got I, I don't know, I got diagnosed and, and I was in your business and this is how I got it. I think that may be part of it. And we, and we did, in fact, mention that the other day. You know, I said it's because of the way we've become more and more litigious. And it all kicked off in the States, really, with the woman with the McDonald's coffee uh, mm -hmm. incident. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think that is part of it. But you know, pubs are starting to um, to get ready to reopen. They're putting perspex shielding up between tables. So you're only going to go to the bar with your friends or, sorry, people of your own household. And if you're meeting your friends there, you've still got to remain socially distanced. So there will be only, you know, the bars and restaurants as they reopen will only be at one third capacity. I saw an amusing um, meme saying, you know, with Pubs opening at one third capacity. We only need people that can actually drink for three. So if you're a lightweight, stay at home. <laughs> <You know? laughs> well, um, we know a couple of couple of chaps in the UK there personally that uh, they won't be uh, they won't be the one staying at home, will they? Uh, I, I know to who which you refer, and one is a lightweight, and the other one is a monster when it comes to drinking. You're so, right. Yeah. Yeah. So if the pubs had their way, only one of them would be going in. The other one would be just taking up space that could be better, better <laughs> used by, by a more dedicated drinker. Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. Um, no, no, it's, it's okay. Let's, uh, let, let's jump over to this. So your, uh, your health secretary, Matt Hancock, he's come out and he said that he hints that the coronavirus immunizations could be made compulsory if the UK finds a vaccination. An effective coronavirus vaccine is yet to be developed anywhere in the world, which is true. Matt Hancock said if one is made, he hopes everybody would have the vaccine. He then left the door open to a mandatory coronavirus vaccination program. I can already tell you how that's going to go in the United States if they make it mandatory. I don't think I have to go into much more detail than that. I think everybody can kind of make up their own minds on what I just said. How's that going to go? Let's just say, for example, that this is what is being proposed behind the scenes. How's that going to go? When it comes to vaccinations, the strong attitude within the UK, the attitude is highly supportive of vaccination. So the measles or the rubella, mumps, those kind of immunizations, you know, we all went through them. They were compulsory 
or, or rather they weren't compulsory, but they were offered free. And that's the big difference. In, a, in, in the States, how much or how many vaccinations do you get free? How many are automatic as you go through your education? Because we had vaccinations against polio, all, all kinds of stuff. That was a sugar lump, as I recall. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, they did the sugar cube. Yeah. Yeah. Girls particularly got vaccinated against uh, measles because of the birth defects that it can cause. So they just sort of happened. And we're used to having uh, a medical team and a couple of nurses rock up at a school and just immunize everybody. So I don't think there would be any great pushback from it because not enough people know about the way Bill Gates thinks. And just recently, Bill Gates has been in the news as advising Boris Johnson or talking to Boris Johnson about the Mm. vaccine. Mm -hmm. So because the people of the UK aren't aware that his father was heavily into eugenics, which is the science of creating superhumans, and that Bill Gates is heavily involved with his foundation, along with his wife, in reproductive health, because he believes that the world is overpopulated. And I believe he's gone on record, which is something, again, we've talked about before, as saying that he would like to correct parts of the human genome that he thinks are wrong, that are malfunctioning. And the manner in which he suggests this will be achieved is via immunizations, vaccinations that contain nanobot technology that alter your genetic make, basically. So because not many people know that, are aware of it, or even seem to care about how this man thinks, there won't be that much of a pushback against compulsory vaccination. I've looked at several aspects of a lot of the things that you just said when it relates to him. But taking the points that you started with there, the vaccinations that we were given, especially you know when I was younger, back in the 80s, we weren't really vaccinated for a whole lot of stuff back then. But we still received you know the usual you know measles, mumps, rubella, and polio vaccinations and stuff like that. But as far as that goes, I mean that that was really about it. I mean there wasn't a whole lot. But now, now the amount of vaccinations that kids receive is, I mean, it's horrendous. It's horrendous, the amount that they that they get now. And not to mention that that they uh, they do this also in uh, in schools. I still I think uh, they still do this. And some parents go through and they refuse this and they're called the anti-vaxxers. I'm sure you've heard that term before. Now, yeah, because they, they, they're linking vaccination to forms of autism and the link hasn't been proven <laughs> to my knowledge anyway, so they, they don't go in for this. They, they There are anti-vaxxers who will have their children vaccinated, but not with the multiple vaccinations. They'd rather have them done singly because their, their argument is, and I don't know the science behind it, is that with the measles, mumps and rubella jab, the MMR, it's too much all at once, and it was causing psychological disorders within children, but that has not been proven as far as I'm aware. We could get into a whole thing about that because I've heard doctors say otherwise, and I've also heard doctors take the line that that you just took, as in, you know, it hasn't been proven. So, I mean, the thing is, either way, either way, I think it's a side issue at the moment. Either way, there is an element of distrust that is within the medical community when it comes to these things. And I'm talking about vaccinations in general. And more to the point, there's a distrust from we the people against the medical and the scientific establishment. Because of people like Gates, people like the WHO, you know, the organization as a whole, guys like Dr. Fauci in the US, right? These are people that have been incorrect. And these are people that have an agenda, have stock options. And this is what they push. They need something like this to sell their product. Imagine if you had a product patented and there was no marketplace for it. What do you have to do? You have to create the marketplace first. Now, we can get into a whole giant thing in behind this, but I mean, and I'm not going to say anything here that's not proven already. The NIH and Fauci funded those labs in China because that's where they can do their dirt, right? You can get by with that stuff in China, you know, that, that type of research. You can't do that in places like the UK, Canada, the United States, uh, Germany. You can't do that. We have laws against that. Bruce brought up an interesting point when, when we were talking about just the other day about uh, these vaccinations, because you had a prominent lawyer come out in the United States named Alan Dershowitz. And he said 
that there's nowhere in the U.S. Constitution that says the government can't forcibly vaccinate you. This raises an interesting point. I just I, I don't I don't like the people behind it. I, I don't trust the people behind it. And, and on top of that, let's take the flu vaccination. OK, the flu vaccine has never been correct. When I say it's never been correct, they've never guessed the correct strain since it's been developed. Late 50s, early 60s, they've never guessed the correct strain. They're using this one. This The basis of this virus is a coronavirus, okay? So a coronavirus is everything from the common cold up to, up to SARS. So what makes you think that they're going to be able to guess the correct strain to make this vaccine effective? We've got upwards of 30 strains that are in the United States now alone. And everyone's physiological makeup is different. Everyone's reaction to it is different. And on top of that, we've got fake data that we're being fed. And so my issue is, is that, first of all, I don't trust the people behind it. I don't trust the uh, the way that, that they're marketing this. And I don't trust the fact that even if it was legitimate, as far as the people behind it and the numbers that we were given, even if that was legitimate, there's no reasonable or plausible reason to believe that what we would get would be effective in the first place. Yes. The flu jab, my personal experience of, of the flu jab is I've had it twice in my entire lifetime. And th- that was the last two years. I have not had a really bad, heavy cold since. And I certainly don't think I've had flu in the last two, three years. So whilst I accept that a virus that mutates and I think Bruce told me this after he'd done some research, around about 12 times a month. Is, is, is that about right, Bruce? Uh, I, I think it's about like 30 times a year, but yeah. Okay. Uh, it, could be, it could be 12 times a month, actually. Um, All right. So, specifically so, with this one. So for the flu virus, sorry, for the flu jab, the flu vaccination to work, they have to use a very broad spectrum of coronaviruses, inactive, basically dead cells that are then injected into you and your body recognizes them and builds antibodies against them across a broad spectrum of coronaviruses. So if I was putting my tinfoil hat on, and we've, we've touched on this before, is if they'd already got the vaccine and they needed a market to sell it, they would have to create the market. And the way to do that would be to release a deadly virus so I'm serious, I've got a tinfoil hat on because I don't believe that's what's happened. But the way they're talking about having a, a vaccine in a short space of time should at least ring some alarm bells amongst the, you know, the media watching, news watching populaces of the planet, shouldn't it? Yeah, it should. And they're skipping over that. I mean, they're rushing this. We've heard from you know Trump and all that team that he's got working on this and all the people that are involved over there on this big, massive push. I've talked to people in the US that are telling me that everything in the medical field right now is a is a push for a covid vaccine. It's almost like a Manhattan project. And so when you do this, you rush things like this, then you're getting to a point where, I mean, you're, you're going to endanger people's lives. And you've already had guys like Fauci come out and say that taking a vaccination for a coronavirus is going to more than likely enhance the negative effects of the virus itself, meaning that's fancy academic talk for, he said that in Senate testimony, by the way, meaning that getting the vaccination, there's a good chance that it would make it worse than what it would be if you'd actually get the disease itself. Well, I'm not sure about that, but I do know that, for example, to draw a parallel, when I joined the army back in the 80s, very early 80s, my weapon, my personal weapon was 35 years old and military procurement takes a long time because it's got to be you know, all these different bits and pieces have to be invented, then they're tested. Then there's a long drawn out negotiation between the manufacturer and the customer. And finally, after testings and trials, these things come into service. So it used to be about 15 years for a new piece of equipment to come into service. Now, it's the same with medicines and vaccines. First of all, it's got to be discovered. Then it's got to be tried and tested. The results of those tests take a long time, and it's normally about from inception through to distribution, about a five-year process within the medical world. So they're cutting corners. They are cutting corners. They went straight to human testing on a number of options. And who knows, maybe because they've thrown caution to the wind, because they felt they had to, 
they will have come up with a viable working vaccine. So, you know, we, we really will have to wait and see. And then it has to be down to the individual whether he trusts his own government, regardless of country that he's in, as to whether or not he wants to have this vaccination. But for it to be compulsory, did, did you say earlier on, sorry, that there's nothing constitutionally to stop your government from making a vaccine compulsory? Well, there is. We call it the Second Amendment. But technically, I mean, the wordage isn't, uh, isn't there. Yeah. So, so, I mean, I, I mean, I was just kind of it dawns on me whenever the government says that they're going to mandate something on you that affects your body. Well, how do I say this? We have a written amendment that gives us the right to mandate something on their body. How's that? Yeah. Yeah. I've been vaccinated against lots of things prior to going to to war in the Gulf where we expected Saddam Hussein to use chemical and biological weapons against us. We had every kind of inoculation that the UK government and the the UK armed forces could possibly think of, including anthrax. And I believe that that vaccination was still untested and it wasn't properly sanctioned. Correct. There There were effects. People had effects from the high dosage of all these different inert viruses that were being put into our body. Not everybody, but a number of people had, they called it Gulf War Syndrome. It was linked back to the amount of inoculations servicemen and women had prior to being deployed into, into the, the theater of war, you know, during Desert Storm. And I, d- I don't know, if my irrational fear is that Bill Gates is putting DNA-changing material into his vaccinations, if that's my irrational fear, then actually, as I am not going to procreate any further, I'm not too concerned. I'll take the vaccine if it stops me getting COVID-19 or whatever coronavirus comes next. However, people who are going to have kids might want to think twice about it. They might want to examine Bill Gates' motives, you know, possibly look at what is contained inside the, the vaccine, if the UK government chooses the one, you know, he his organisation has helped research because it might be that we find our own. But you still want to know what's in it. You want to be sure that it's not got something in there that is trying to change your DNA that you will pass on to your kids. It wouldn't happen to you, the individual having the, the vaccination, but it could happen in future generations. If, if for instance, he was trying to make the gene that causes aggressive behavior and high testosterone levels regressive, you know, so so that the whole world was calmer and more compliant, then that's cause for concern because, I'm sorry, our DNA, our very state of being human makes us what we are. And whether he thinks the world is overpopulated and wants to make it a less populated and safer place, in his opinion, I don't care about that, and no one in the world should be bothered about what Bill Gates' opinion is and what his desires are just because he's got $104 billion. Well, according to many magazines, he's only got a few billion dollars. He's not very rich. He's, he's not very rich. <laughs> but anyway, okay. uh, Bruce, you got any thoughts on that before we, uh, before we move on here? I do. Um, so personally, I'm not as concerned with this one coming up. You know, the I'm concerned with possible health effects, but as far as like the conspiratorial level, they're going to try to change our DNA. I'm not as concerned with it now, just because that technology is very experimental right now. It only just entered human testing. I want to say it was in December, and I don't recall seeing the results on that yet. That said, technologies they're working on with that, one of them is called CRISPRs, and that's just a modified virus, more or less, that injects itself into your DNA and alters it. And it is immediately effective on the patient. So, for example, the the test they were doing in December was to repair someone's eyesight that was born blind. And, you know, it was a genetic thing. And the hope was that by doing this, it would repair the eyesight for that person. If that is the case, it does work. I'm concerned that that would be easily incorporated into a future vaccine. I'm, I'm more concerned about the precedent that's being set 
and saying that, no, it's totally okay for the government to come in and mandate that we're going to give you a a vaccine. What happens when the next pandemic comes out and it's just as ludicrous as this one where the, the fatality rate is a decimal point? I mean, they do this again and force everyone to have it and hide something in there like that. I mean, because of the turnover rate uh, for politicians in the U.S., you may trust your current politicians, but there's no guarantee you'll trust the next ones or the next government or, for that matter, even this government. Uh, You know, I mean, we're seeing stuff that was happening from the previous government that is coming into this government and it's totally corrupt and dirty and it's in the the very depths of our – I just – I'm I'm more concerned about the future. Yeah, the the issue is is I, I get what you're saying, and and we had our two podcasts on the New World Order, right? We we talked about all those mm. different groups. Now, what's unique about all those groups that we talked about? Actually, I didn't even put this together. I mean, I knew it, but I didn't really, I couldn't really tie it all together until you just made that point. When we did those, do you know what was common about all those groups, whether they were connected to each other or not? Do you know what was common about all those groups? They were carrying an agenda, each of them for themselves, and it was a it was a time-honored agenda. It wasn't something that was just in that one particular organization for a particular period of time, and then that was it. Each one of those organizations had a long-term plan, longer than, and I'm saying a longer term than, say, like uh, the human lifespan, because some of that stuff started hundreds of years ago, and we're seeing the effects of it now. And so you're right. You're, you're right. When you bring up that point, when you say that you might trust the government now, but they'll set the precedent and then it'll be carried out later down the line. Actually, I think that's the um, I think that's the whole thing here, because you have a group of people that are carrying out a long term agenda. Look at the United Nations. It was set up in what, 49, right? It was set up in 49. Mm-hmm. The goal of it at the time was to be a world government body, but they knew that it wasn't going to take a few years or a few decades. It was going to take more like, I don't know, 100 years, maybe. Same thing with the Federal Reserve Bank that when it was established in the United States was established in 1913. But that was a 100 year process. They actually made the charter for it that was 100 years. It ran out in 2013. They had to renew it. So it's a long term goal. Same thing with Gates. It doesn't matter if it's if it's uh, him, but the agenda will continue. That's my point. Yeah. Look, this has just occurred to me from something that Bruce said as well. He's you're very thought provoking for for me and Johnny Bruce. Um, when uh, antibiotics were discovered, they were overused to a certain extent. They knew it had great effects on certain types of disease and certain types of condition, but where they were overused and still are today. What they can do is create, you know, antibiotic resistant strains of bacteria, uh, an infection. So if we vaccinate, vaccinate, vaccinate um, for different coronaviruses, eventually, um, because that's the way life works, it always looks for ways to multiply. Eventually, there will be a coronavirus that won't be stoppable by anything. So. In some ways, I'm on the side of the herd immunity. Yes, we do have to you know, protect ourselves and there will be casualties. But as you said earlier on, that mortality rate is a point of a percent and not a whole number. So, you know, the more and more I, I get to know about this, the more skeptical I become. A few years ago, I'd have said, you know, don't be so ridiculous just have the vaccine. Now I want to know exactly what's in it. And I want to have a high level of confidence that we are not being manipulated in some way. It's a very nice way to think, sir, because I can't say that I would I would do anything different. You know, you say that you want to know exactly what's in it. When I was working my last job in the States before I left, when I was when I was working over there, I asked one of the pharmacists of this company that they sent us to to get uh, flu shots. They were saying, oh, yeah, we'll give you uh, free flu shots because you work here. And I'm like, for, you work here for this firm. I'm like, oh, OK. So I uh, I go over to the uh, the pharmacy where they where they were at. And I said, hey, um, I asked the pharmacist, I said, can you give me one of those inserts for that flu shot, which, which I didn't take, by the way. I said, can you give me one of those flu shot inserts? And he actually had to look for them. And I, I asked him as I'm sitting there reading it. Right. And it actually says in there in the insert, it says does not protect you against the seasonal flu. It says that in the insert for the flu shot that you're about to take. And I looked at him and I said, Doc, I mean, just, you know, because I was just that's what I was used to call pharmacists. I said, uh, Doc, I said right here where it says does not protect against the seasonal flu. And he said, yeah. I said, 
well, then why would I take it? And he just smiled and he says, you shouldn't. Yeah, that, that just sent a chill down my spine. <laughs> uh-huh. You know? Yeah. Anyway, um, let, let's get over to, uh, let, let's jump subjects here. Keeping with the UK, though, I want to talk about the country where this thing originated from, China. So there's now a political battle that's erupted between the UK and China because of all this, rightfully so, uh, which, by the way, they're on board. We covered yesterday. They're on board with um, with a consortium of countries that are going to take this case to the WHO. They're calling for an investigation into the WHO. Rightfully so. They're calling for an investigation into the CCP over all this. Rightfully so. I mean, that has to happen. Has to happen. Sorry, but that's what needs to happen. And you need to do it now. You need to do it sooner rather than later before they can cover everything up again. So you got you to get on those guys down in Geneva. You got to get on those guys in Beijing and you've got to hold their feet to the fire. But now there's another thing that's this come up. We're, and when I'm talking about Huawei, we've talked about Huawei with the uh, the 5G deal uh, in the UK. And, you know, we've discussed these vigilantes that are out there burning these these uh, mobile phone tower masks, you know, because of 5G, because for whatever reason, they think that that's causing this coronavirus or what whatever. But the fact is, is now Boris Johnson has come out and he has said that he wants to reduce China's involvement in building this 5G network to zero by 2023. So this is a good thing, right? This is kind of what you wanted. You, you wanted that Huawei deal revoked, right? Yeah, absolutely. Don't want anything to do with Huawei as far as the, the new network and the infrastructure is concerned. However, as we mentioned offline, Everyone is on a hiding to nothing to build a new uh, communications infrastructure without including Chinese manufactured products. That's because China's making everything. You know, the rest of the world's manufacturing industry, particularly in in the world of, of technology, has just been reduced and reduced and reduced. So Boris's latest plan seems to be to include Huawei's hardware inside the telephone network, but in the more sensitive areas of communications, the microwave technology stuff, you know, the the way in which our intelligence is passed through various agencies, security agencies, would not come from uh, China. The processors would come from elsewhere. And, you know, the UK and the US have had a very long relationship. Despite falling out uh, in 1775, we've had a, a good, or was it 1776? I think that's when you'd finally won it, wasn't it? 1776? It's, was when, that we when, signed, it's when we signed the uh, Declaration of Independence. It was on July 4th, if you were wondering. Yeah, an excellent piece of paper written by an Englishman. Um, <laughs> you couldn't resist, could you? <laughs> no. Uh, so so we've had this good relationship for, for a long time. So why not have, if we can't do it here in the UK, why not have our partner and our long-term ally build the stuff for us? At least we could have more trust. Yes, we know the CIA will have backdoors put into our, our chips, but we'd rather you were getting to know about it than, than China. And of course, we will feed you misinformation via those back doors anyway. You know, I, I, I've said it before, you know, we're, we're better off now because we're just dear friends. We, <laughs> that's, that's how it is. But on a more serious note, do you know, 100 years ago, uh, and a lot of people don't know this, 100 years ago, the two most powerful nations on this planet were the United Kingdom and the United States. Now, why is that? Because we were divorced from the problems of the rest of the world. We were land masses in and of ourselves. So we didn't really have much of a need to be out there bothering the rest of the world. Everyone else could kind of do whatever they wanted. And we were pretty much self-sufficient, except with the exception of the UK. You guys had the Commonwealth, so that, that helped you out a lot. But we can be... We can be those those nations again. We can be those great nations again. And you know something? We could take the rest of mainland Europe along with it, as in bring them along with us. So this is where I kind of I, I make the references to the election of Donald Trump and the election of uh, of Boris Johnson because and, and Brexit, right? The, the whole Brexit deal. That's essentially these two countries again coming together at the turn of this century and saying up yours to the establishment right? We don't want to be a part of this anymore. Your policies have destroyed us. So yes, absolutely. I agree that we can do much better trading amongst ourselves and rather or not, 
you know, whoever, whoever makes the, um, you know, the technology one side of the Atlantic or the other, I don't think, to be honest with you, I think it doesn't matter because we're going to be dependent on each other for so many other things, so many other trade avenues that, I mean, it's just, it's going to have to go along with it, especially if we're going to break off from the system, which I, I think is, is right. I mean, we're right there on the edge of it, man. I mean, to get out of these, the, these globalist organizations and I, I can't stand these people, but when you talked about Huawei there, right? Huawei employs something, which we all know that that's just that that's essentially just a um, a tech firm for the CCP, right? That's that's what it is. That's what we know. So they employ a, a particular type of tactic, and it's a way that they can get into people's information. It's it's essentially it's like eavesdropping. It's called DPI or deep packet inspection. Okay, so this is essentially what causes that firewall to be up in China. You know, we always hear about the Great Firewall. That's what it is. And it's managed and run by Huawei. And so they want that DPI. They want that deep packet inspection. They want to be able to get into all of your your information. This, along with 5G, is is what is going to allow them to get into your phones. Do you know if you're in if you're in China, all of your information is data mined, eavesdropped and censored? Did you know that? Because of all that, all that is monitored from your phone. Everything, every single time you send a text message, it goes through that. It goes through deep packet inspection. Now, where did Huawei, where did the CCP get their hands on that technology? Where did it come from? Who developed that technology? It was developed by a company called Broadcom. Broadcom developed that in conjunction with a company called Cisco Systems. Both of these come from Silicon Valley in the United States. Okay, I think anyone can draw their own conclusion on this, but this is something that needs to be seriously looked at before we allow these this company to come into Western civilization from any country. I don't care if it's Germany or if it's Italy or if it's the UK, if it's Canada, if it's the United States. I don't care. I don't think that it should be allowed in any of these countries, in any of the West. If they want to use it in China, then that's on the Chinese people to uh, to deal with that. I understand that they're under a deep boot of oppression over there. I get it. And they know that they've got the Chinese people know that they've got a long fight ahead of them to to uh, throw off the CCP and to get some real democracy in over there like they've done in Taiwan and Hong Kong. And you see the power grabs they're making for Hong Kong. But I think it's incumbent upon all Western nations as a whole. If the EU has any shred of credibility left, if the United Nations has any shred of credibility left, then they'll stop this organization from coming into these countries. A uh, point of critique a little bit with Boris's plan there. As an American looking in from the, from the outside, I agree with wanting to keep Huawei out of the government's, uh, you know, encrypted communications. But it, it just kind of seems a little um, elitist, shall we say, for saying, We'll keep our communications protected, but you, the people, not so much. The fact that Huawei has any, you know, hold, if you will, on on data like that, it just, it, it, I don't know, it just seems elitist. It seems like it's okay to share your information, but not ours. You're absolutely right. And I, and I think that could be a plausible deniability tactic. So in the future, when excrement hits the fan and people say, my, co- my telephone conversations have all been recorded and so on and so forth. Boris or whoever's in power at that time could, ah, oh, yeah, really sorry. It was due to the Chinese technology we had in our 5G public telephone network. Um, and this is what's happened. But as I said earlier, any country is on a hiding to nothing if they, tr- if they are going to try to build a communications network infrastructure without including Chinese hardware, because they really are building about 97% of it globally. So the only way to do it is to ramp up production and manufacture within the States and within the UK. And by 2023, they should be able to, you know, make sure the network is secure or the secure network is secure by using homegrown components. But if they're bought from America, you can bet. What did, what did you call it? DPI, deep package inspection. Deep packet inspection, yeah. Yeah, deep packet inspection. You can bet if we buy them from the States, it'll be there as well. Any country who's um, got an intelligence network and has got the ability to build this kind of technology is going to put its own back door in. 
there's no way they, they could resist it. You're correct. You're correct. And when you said there, the only way to do this is to spin up manufacturing. This is what we talked about the other day, wasn't it, Bruce? We're on the verge of another industrial revolution, but it's a revolution of tech. We could actually hit that next age of expansion. And if we do this the right way, then I, mean, I think the sky's the limit here. Yeah, I agree. And um, as we just said, China has most of the manufacturing for this technology. So who's going to see the Industrial Revolution first? Uh, they have. Yes, they have most of this technology for the manufacturing because we gave them the know how to do it. We had it, but we sold it off to them. The venture capitalists, the crony capitalists went over and jumped in bed with them. That's how they've got it. And we sold out our manufacturing to them. So, of course, they're going to run ahead with it. Of course they are. So what? The Western fat cat gets to line his pockets and we get to suffer the result of it and become dependent. We, be, we get to become a satellite of a country in the Far East because they decided they were going to get rich off of it. That's not right. That's treason. I'm sorry. Well, that's also the seed of its own destruction, because I agree with what you say. However, if it's not going to be a government run research program, which a lot of people have a problem with, and it's venture capitalists, those venture capitalists want to sell that product, whatever that new thing is, globally. They don't want to just sell it to a single outlet. They don't want to just sell it to the US or the UK or, or a combination of both. They want to sell it to everyone. So eventually, that piece of technology gets handed over or it gets stolen. I mean, how many examples of copying happened with Japan when it started its manufacturing industry. Same with the they'd get a hold. Yes, they'd get a hold of the blueprints, they'd, they'd get a hold of the design, and they would start copying it. They don't give a hoot for, you know, uh, intellectual property rights, copyright, any of those things. If they get it, they'll start producing it. If they get the designs, they will start producing. So somewhere along the line, the person who's invented it or owns the patent and has spent all that money on research wants to get paid. So before it's stolen via espionage, it's sold as rapidly as they can because it, you know, once something good is out there on the market, you can bet that the Chinese are looking for it and trying to get hold of it by whatever means necessary. You're absolutely right on that. And you know, there's uh, there's always espionage that goes on, and there's something we actually wanted to cover at some point, and it's actually it's it's called um, uh, this was an actual testimony that I've got in my hands here, uh, and we'll go over it at some point. This was actual testimony that was given to the uh, the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. These are military intelligence people that sit down and they explain to the House Committee on how China's foreign influence and sharp power strategy. If anyone wants to look that up, go look up sharp power. Look up China sharp power strategy. It's a way that they infiltrate and they shape and influence democratic institutions. And there's everything. There's everything they get into. They get into manufacturing. They get into education. They get into entertainment. They get into publishing. I mean, you name it. They're in it. They're, they're in it. That's what they do. And so one of the examples you mentioned there about, you know, these countries grabbing up something and not giving a hoot about patents or anything like that or copyright infringement or whatever, and they'll just move on with it. One thing that I've actually I've had the privilege to be one of not very many people that I know. Actually, I don't think I know anybody that's done this. Maybe you have. I don't know. There was a very famous jet uh, that was made back in the day by and it was championed by British Airways and, of course, Air France called the Concorde. You remember the Concorde? And the Concorde was, uh, it was a, really, it was a wonder for its time. It was quite something. And I hope that they can actually get it to a point where, where we can advance to a point where we can bring it back because it was really quite something. It was a passenger airliner that would break the sound barrier. It was something else. And I think, what was it? You could make the flight from London to New York in, what was it, three hours? Quicker than that. Was Faster it really? Than that? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, the thing I'm referencing here is the Soviets had something similar that came out right about the same time, and it looked almost exactly the same. It was called the Tupolev. And it was, I don't think they ever actually got it to work right. <laughs> but nonetheless, it did fly, and it did break the sound barrier, and it, it did do just about the same. However, I've been on both of them, right? I, I've been inside both of them. And I've been to one of the museums, I've actually been to the only museum where both of them are on display, and you can go inside both of them and see them. And it was really, it's its one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. And I'll never forget it. And I've got photos and, and everything. It's, it's actually not that far. I mean, I can go back anytime I want. But it's the only place in the world world where both of them are on display and you can go inside of them. And so 
you go in the one from Air France, or which was essentially it was the same same manufacturer from uh, British Airways, and it was it was clean, it was done right, it was in order, nothing was a mess. But you go on to the Tupelop, and it's like everything was just thrown together, right? I mean, it's like whatever they had laying around in a factory. So, I mean, you could tell that there was a significant difference. I mean, it was quality wise, it just wasn't there, and so. You see that they take the copy of the plans that they had and they rushed it, not caring about anything. And my issue is, is I guess when you look at Western countries as a whole, whether it's Germany, whether it's England or France or uh, the Italians make a good product or the United States or Canada or Mexico, we make a better product. We make products that last. Chinese companies do not. The Japanese even make good products. So you can't lump all Eastern countries in there as well. But we have quality behind the stuff that we manufacture and the things that we make. And so I think that in and of itself is going to be an even bigger driver for us to want to manufacture things for our, for ourselves. There's no doubt about it that when Japan started to, to develop after the Second World War and, and look at its manufacturing industry, it turned out some real ropey stuff. But that message about, you know, the words made in Japan were synonymous with rubbish. Yeah. And the Japanese are very proud people. They heard that that was the global message on their products and they cleaned their act up. And and now when you look at the quality and reliability uh, of their motor cars and their motorcycles and their electronic goods, then, you know, they're, they're really way up there on the quality. The Tupolev, that was all about not looking second rate to your own people. The Soviet Union pushed that the development of that aircraft forward. Whether they stole the designs or just looked from the outside and tried to think what might be recreated on the inside, yeah, it, it came up as, as a very, very second rate you know, alternative to, to the Concorde aircraft. But that was what it was all about. It was about the Soviet Union. Who was leader then? Was it Brezhnev? Uh, Nikita Khrushchev. It was Khrushchev. All right, because the actual design of the aircraft, and, and, and this is where it is particularly significant, it was Khrushchev. Khrushchev. He was actually at the airport when they debuted it. And it's funny thing about it. Uh, I actually learned this at the museum when I was when I was in it because it was rushed. I mean, like they literally were putting the panels on when he got. Did, there. He, did he decline and the test flight? No, I, I, he did not go on the test flight. But when he no. sat down on one of the uh, on one of the seats, one of the panels above him fell off onto him. Yeah, the design of the aircraft was originally supposed to be a long range nuclear bomber. That that's what the the whole design of the Concorde uh, early days, where where the concept for the supersonic passenger passenger jet came from was from a long-ranged nuclear bomber. So Russia had to, I say Russia, it was the whole of the Soviet Union were working together then, so it was a much bigger entity, had to come up with something so that they didn't lose face. Uh, you know, higher the Cold War stuff. Um, it's hardly surprising that they turned out an absolute piece of rubbish. And Concorde had a really, really good safety record right up to that last flight that, that went that was in, it was in Paris wasn't it it was in Paris yeah um, it was the Air France flight yeah and uh, that was a great shame very great shame talking of which in the news it's current and one of the was it Karachi Air or Air Pakistan aircraft that Air Pakistan just crashed yeah. Air yeah. Pakistan crashed in uh, Lahore as it was landing or did it crash in Karachi it was coming from Lahore to Karachi I swore to anyone who would listen, that I will not travel by aircraft for at least a month after any kind of lockdown, all lockdown and restrictions have been lifted. Because it's so scary for me to get onto an aircraft, being an engineer, knowing that sometimes people have a clear conscience and a sharp pencil when they tick off the planned maintenance schedule. So I want to make sure that um, any aircraft I get on in the future has at least been through a couple of proper maintenance cycles before I'll stick my precious bum in one of those seats. Uh, just a quick question. Uh, maybe you can answer this. Maybe you can't. With these airlines 
being grounded as they are, you mentioned they're about ticking off safety inspections and maintenance and things like that. How long can an aircraft sit before it starts to, I guess, need more maintenance and more flight time? So, I mean, I, what uh, I guess what I'm asking is, was, is at yeah, what time would it yeah. be okay to, to, you know, start trusting the planes? I'm not talking about the pilot because if it's mechanical failure, it's obviously not their fault. But at what point well, should a passenger feel safe? I, I reckon that the larger aircraft that have been mothballed for a period of time during the lockdown and during the low demand for air travel, if they've been properly mothballed, all the bits and pieces that can decay through lack of use or, you know, need regular changing, they will have been removed and they will need to be put back, brand new ones, put back onto the aircraft before they, they start to operate again. And, you, you know, if, if, if an aircraft is mothballed properly, it can spend any amount of time on the ground before someone comes along, replaces all those perishable parts, because it's all done on hours. You know, the parts of the engine, the control equipment, it's all done on the number of hours that that aircraft has been flying and in between services and replacement of those kind of parts. So it will be safe, but you want to be sure that someone's you know, doing the regular maintenance, the, the aircraft that are in constant operation, are they being maintained properly? That is just something that I would want to be certain of. So I, I personally, even after the restrictions, I would be wanting to wait a good month or two months before taking a flight anywhere. Okay. Well, I'll have to keep that in mind. I'm due to be uh, to be flying in November. But what you're telling me is, is if there's nothing that's been lifted back to 100%, then don't get on a plane. Is that what you're saying? That's what I would say. Yeah. Okay. All right. That's me. That's me personally. I'm not trying to scare my. I will take. I will take your word on it over someone else's because I know what you do for a living. (laughs) I will not um, not necessarily what I do now, but it's what I've done in the past. uh, That's good enough for me. Okay. That that's good enough for me. I'll I'll take I'll take it on that. So anyway, anything else you'd like to cover today? No, I'm good. I've had a good chat. Thank you very much. I do like to get it off my chest. It's very cathartic. Well, you know, when you're in here. I kind of, I kind of let you go on and 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 speak your piece because I know you don't come on here every day like we, like we do. So when you're on here, I, I kind of let you uh, kind of let you do your own thing and and air your grievances because after all, this is Marty's leather couch. The days you're in here, right? Yeah, this is saving me thousands of pounds in therapy um, and possibly being sectioned. <laughs> <laughs> and thanks to Bruce for for letting me speak so much as well. He's a good man. He is. He's a good guy. That's why we keep him around. So, all right. You'll remember that? Yeah, okay. (laughs) All right. We'll have to go ahead and call it an end to it. Marty, Bruce, thanks for your time today. Cheers, Johnny. Cheers, Bruce. And from all of us here, wherever you are in the world, we thank you for listening. Because it's all of you that listen that make this all possible. We love you, and we love freedom and independence. And together, we'll continue to fight for those in the marketplace of ideas. So we'll see all of you tomorrow.